Hello and welcome back to Oro Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold. And in this episode of Oro Valley Catholic, we're gonna talk about violence in the Bible. Well, here's a very good example from Deuteronomy chapter 20, starting at verse 10. And it's the laws of warfare for the ancient people of Israel coming right out of Deuteronomy. So here's what God says to the people of Israel. When you draw near to a city, attack it, offer it terms of peace, but agrees to your terms of peace and let you in, all the people to be found in it shall serve you in forced labor. But if it refuses to make peace with you and instead joins battle with you, lay siege to it. And when the Lord your God delivers it into your power, put every male in it to the sword. But the women and the children and livestock and anything else in the city, all its spoil, you may take as plunder for yourselves. You may enjoy this spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Now, I'm going to start again in a minute, but that's verses 10 to 14. And it really is what happens in the ancient Greek poem of the Iliad when they put Troy to the sword. This is how ancient warfare uh, happen, whether it's the Babylonians, the Syrians, the Egyptians, the Greeks, or the people of Israel. When you're fighting with somebody, you give them a chance to give up. But if they don't give up, then all the men have to die. And then the women and the children go into slavery. But God's told the people of Israel, there are different rules for the people in the land that I gave you. So the Amalekites, the Canaanites, the Jebusites in Jerusalem, the people within the land of Israel. Here's what he says. But that's how you should deal with any city at a considerable distance from you, which does not belong to these nations here. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you as a heritage, you shall not leave a single soul alive. You must put them all under the ban the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, just as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that they do not teach you to do all the abominations that they do for their gods, and you thus sin against the Lord your God. Wow, violence in the Old Testament. So is the God of the Old Testament the angry, vengeful God? Is he different from Jesus? How should we think about this as Catholics? If there's one thing I'd like you to take away with you from this episode of Oral Valley Catholic is that we read the Old Testament through Jesus' colored eyes. Let's talk about violence in the Old Testament. Violence is shot through the Old Testament. If you go back to the book of Genesis chapter 22, God asked Abraham, if you remember, to sacrifice his son Isaac. In Deuteronomy 20, uh, as I just read it to you, he says when you're fighting with uh, people in the land of Israel, you don't leave any of them alive. And then if you look at the prophet Joel, which is after the Babylonian captivity, and it talks about the day of the Lord, a great and terrible day, when there shall be blood and fire and columns of smoke. So the God of the Old Testament is shot through with these violent commands to the people. How should we understand it? There isn't any really one explanation for it, but some of it does make some sense 
to at least understand why these people living in a Bronze Age culture would have these kinds of rules. All you have to do is read ancient stories of warfare, and it was a violent world. People have always fought about things. They fought about resources. They fought about who gets to tax who. Religions often gotten drug into it, though I don't think there's any war that's fought solely over religion, because even if you look at the uh, Thirty Years' War uh, about religion in Europe during the time of the Reformation, um, it really was about politics and which French king or German prince got to rule which people. And then they settled it, if you remember, by your religion becomes whatever the person is that rules you, what their religion is. So religion and warfare has this complicated history. But violence in the Old Testament is bigger than just religious warfare. Well, take the story of the Akedah. That's Genesis 22, which is about Abraham's command by God to sacrifice his son Isaac. You remember he has only the one son. God says, I want you to take him to Mount Moriah, which is the place uh, where the temple in Jerusalem is ultimately built a thousand years later. And there he's supposed to cut Isaac's throat and sacrifice him and offer his body up as a holocaust to burn him down to ashes. But you remember that the angel of the Lord stops Abraham from doing it and uh, gives him instead a ram to offer in the place of his son Isaac. It's why in the Old Testament, um, the firstborn son was bought back by sacrifice. And so if you remember in Jesus' story, when they take him uh, to the temple to have him um, circumcised and they offer a, a uh, sacrifice of two turtle doves, they could have offered a lamb, but two turtle doves, two pigeons are the sacrifice of poor people. It goes back to this story of buying back the firstborn. It's what's called an ideological myth. Um, it explains why religiously you do something. And so it serves the purpose of sparing Israel child sacrifice. Um, child sacrifice is in the Old Testament. Jephthah in the book of Judges sacrifices his daughter. Um, and so that there are these religious practices recounted in the Old Testament that are clearly out of step with the Torah, but they happen anyway. And so there's the king Mesha of Moab uh, in 2 Kings chapter 3 who engages in child sacrifice. Uh, in Jeremiah, they talk about Topheth in the Gehenna Valley on the side of Jerusalem where Jerusalemites offered sacrifices to, um, to the God there, uh, and so, uh, which was not the God of Israel. So these stories about how you avoid child sacrifice is about redirecting these um, ancient understandings of sacrifice and taming them, uh, getting them out of uh, Jewish and Israelite religious sacrifice to a sacrifice that uh, does not involve your, your young people. But the war, the rules on war is something different. The rule from Deuteronomy chapter 20, which I read to you, um, it's about identity. And that happens, um, gosh, throughout the Old Testament. Although there isn't any really clear example of where it's actually carried through. 
If you look at the books of Joshua and Judges, where Joshua is supposed to put everybody to the sword, you remember in Jericho, he actually saves Rahab and her whole family. So he doesn't do harem. This is the idea of harem, is to destroy everything. Uh, in, in the idea in Joshua is that they were able to conquer the whole family and put all their enemies to death. However, when you get to the next book, which is Judges, uh, it's very clear that all of these people referred to, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, that they still exist in the land, and they still have cities in the land, and they are still practicing their idolatrous ways in the land. So if you're going to try to take the history of the Old Testament literally, are you going to accept Joshua or accept Judges? Because they're very different views of what actually happened um, in this conquest that supposedly happened in the land of Israel. Joshua is, overwhelms everybody and the people or just impose the worship of Yahweh on the entire land. But in Judges, it's very clear that the worship of Yahweh is just one more example of who you can worship. And it continues on if you go to the first and second book of Samuel. And if you remember that Elijah, the great prophet, who's going to figure into this, into this podcast a little later on, you remember he has this great battle with the worshipers of Baal uh, on Mount Carmel because Ahab, an Israelite king, and his, his Lebanese or Canaanite wife, uh, Jezebel uh, really are Baal worshippers. They're polygamists. Ahab will sacrifice to Yahweh if that gets him what he wants, or he'll sacrifice to Baal if that gets him what he wants. So this idea of harem is actually being an historical reality. There seems to be not real evidence of it. Um, in fact, the best story is in, in the book of uh, 1 Samuel, where Saul is ordered to kill Agog and all the Amalekites, destroy all their women, kill all their animals, because they are in the land of Israel. But Saul uh, kills a lot of the men. He doesn't kill the, all of them. He kills, takes prisoner like Agog because he could be helpful to him. He saves the attractive women and he takes them and sells them into slavery or uses them as slaves. And then he takes the livestock. But when God sees that he didn't put, put the ban on the Amalekites, he didn't practice harem as commanded, that's how the kingship of Israel is transferred by Samuel the prophet from Saul to King David. But when you get to the story of King David, there isn't any stories about King David destroying everybody. He's very victorious in war, but Haram, the ban, just doesn't seem to be part of his story. And so what do you do with all of that? Because it is in the Old Testament. Um, I'd like to turn to how Jesus handles the problem of violence in the Old Testament, because that's at the center of today's gospel from Luke. Let's go there now. And so this is a reading from Luke chapter nine. And in the gospel of Luke, one of the key things to understand about the gospel of Luke is that Jesus is always heading from Galilee towards Jerusalem. 
He's born in Bethlehem. His family goes back to their homestead in Nazareth. He preaches in the, the land where the 10 tribes have been lost, up in the north, the old ancient kingdom of Israel. But he's always heading towards Jerusalem. And so the story in Luke chapter 9 begins like this. When the days for Jesus' being taken up, that's his ascension, were fulfilled, he resolutely determined to journey to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him. And on the way, they entered a Samaritan village. And if you remember the Samaritans, they're descendants of these lost 10 tribes. And so to prepare, he sends the messengers to prepare for his reception there. But they would not welcome him because the destination of his journey was Jerusalem. And, you know, Samaritans and Jerusalemites just do not get along for a thousand years. So when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they journeyed to another village. Calling down fire from heaven, that's lightning and brimstone. Where is the violence in all of this? Pretty obvious that James and John are violent men. But there's a background to the story. When Mark tells this story, you might recall that Jesus gives them kind of a sarcastic uh, name, calls them Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Uh, and so it's kind of a, a, a bit of a mocking name to these two guys. But why, what were James and John referring to? Because John's the author of the Gospel of John. James is one of the first martyrs in the church. And it's interesting that their career with Jesus starts out with wanting to rain destruction on those that they see as contrary to the law of God, using divine violence to take care of human problems. Like in the story of Noah, right? Where God supposedly wipes out the entire population of the planet except for the remnant that he, he preserves. So this act of violence by James and John really is very consistent with this Old Testament approach to uh, heterodoxy, other ways of believing. And you remember James and John especially was the one who said to Jesus and Mark, these others are casting out demons in your name. Uh, stop them, to which Jesus said, if they're doing something in my name, remember that those who are not against us or for us or uh, words to that effect that, that uh, you don't just destroy or stop people who are trying to do the work of God as best as they can understand it. So the, what's behind it? Well, it's the violence of the two great prophets that are behind the ministry of Jesus, especially the, the prophet Elijah. Do you remember Elijah and Elisha were both prophets to the nation of Israel about 50 to 70 years before Israel and Samaria, which is the roots of the Samaritans that Jesus is referring to in the scriptures today, that Elijah and Elisha were both prophets trying to get a Samaria and the people of the north to come back to fidelity um, to, to Yahweh. And so there is violence in these stories. So for instance, uh, Ahab in 1 Kings chapter 17 is told by Elijah that there will be no rain in Israel until uh, Ahab uh, changes his ways because Baal, the god he's worshiping, is a rain god, the god of thunder. Um, but uh, Yahweh is truly in command of all of nature. Um, and so 
he's fed by ravens. He, he, that's how God supports him. He raises a widow's son from the dead. Um, but think of in all of this, which is we think of as miracles of God providing for Elijah. Well, how about this? In 1 Kings 18, he calls down fire from heaven uh, atop Mount Carmel because there's this duel going on with all the 400 priests of Baal uh, who can't get Baal to send lightning. He's a lightning god. But he doesn't show up for this, for this uh, rumble on Mount Carmel, which is this liminal space between uh, what is modern Lebanon and modern Israel. And so when Elijah calls down lightning, what happens? Boom, immediately the, the um, sacrifice is consumed by divine fire. So this is partly behind what's behind James and John as saying, let's call down fire on them. But then if you remember, Elijah, victorious, seizes all the 400 priests of Baal and cuts all of their throats down in the valley below. Um, violence in scripture. Uh, but he also calls down fire from heaven when Ahab sends 51 soldiers to arrest him in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 10. And then when they're consumed, Ahab, and it must be admitted unwisely, sends another 51 soldiers to force him to come in. Once again, Elijah calls down fire from heaven, and these 51 soldiers are all consumed. Um, even his uh, follower, Elisha, if you remember, Elisha is the one that Elijah handpicks to continue his ministry, calling the people in Israel to conversion. There is a story in 2 Kings chapter 2, which is, uh, goes like this. From there, Elisha went, Elisha went up to Bethel, which is in the north, and as he was walking along the road, some boys, probably annoying teenagers, came out of the town and jeered at him, at him. And they said, get out of here, Baldy. This is actually in 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 23 to 24. Get out of here, Baldy. Get out of here, Baldy. So he turned around, looked at them, called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two she-bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. So, okay, first, teenagers can be annoying. Second, Maybe this has occurred to you, but you should never do it. But three, it is about violence in the Old Testament in the name of a prophet. And so if you just think about the story that's being told in the Gospel of Luke, people think that Jesus is Elijah. Remember when he asks, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some say you're Elijah, come back. So when James and John are asking Jesus to call down fire from heaven, um, they think he's Elijah, and he'll just do to the Samaritans what Elijah did to those soldiers, what he did to the priests of Baal, what Elisha did to those teenage boys. So when we look at these stories about violence in the Old Testament, uh, we try to understand them through Jesus' rebuke of James and John. And so... The big argument in the early church uh, was about whether or not Christians should be pacifists, although some of our early saint martyrs like Sebastian and uh, Saint Maurice were both soldiers. And obviously by the fourth century, there were a fair number of Christians in the Roman military, especially in Constantine's civil war, 
uh, with his challengers for who got to be the emperor of Rome, uh, but that the way that the church has dealt with this is that violence is part of a fallen world. God does not call us to kill our children. God does not call us uh, to put the ban on others. In fact, the early church thought of it very differently and how to understand the Old Testament when reading it through the lens of Jesus. And I want to turn to that now. You may be aware that in the second century, there was a heretical group, one of the first heresies in uh, Christian history uh, that St. Irenaeus criticized strongly. And they were called the Montanists after their leader, Mont Montanists, I think was named. They were called the Montanists. So they actually had female priests, um, but the basic part of it was, was that the God of the Old Testament was an evil God. Jesus was the God that defeated him. So this is basically a Gnostic idea, the war between good and evil. And so the Old Testament scriptures were not part of the Montanist scriptures, um, just Jesus. And Jesus had female disciples, which meant you didn't have to pay attention to the Old Testament priesthood or Jesus' fulfillment of it as a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And so the Montanist heresy does not look a lot like Orthodox Christianity because it just accepted certain books in the New Testament and uh, had a very truncated view of, um, of, uh, of God's revelation through the people of Israel to the present. And St. Irenaeus uh, called on that. And so why it is that the cross is at the center of Christianity that God and Christians will endure violence, but they won't, in fact, do violence. This is the struggle with pacifism in the early church and whether or not a Christian could be part of the Roman military. And it kind of resolved itself over time, but still in our Christian tradition is we have great and brave soldiers who've served in all the branches of the military over the last 2,000 years. We also have great pacifists like Dorothy Day uh, and Peter Morin and others who have preached against war and have uh, taken a very different tact. Both of, those, um, uh, both of those approaches to the gospel uh, have been within the realm of Catholicism. The thought is on serving in the military is that the purpose of the Christian following St. Augustine is trying to keep the world from being as awful as it can. Someone's got to oppose Adolf Hitler. You know, and the, the, but you listen to the popes and uh, the idea of going to the sword too readily, which is really the sin of the world, uh, we've had nothing but uh, intermittent warfare for the last 100 years plus, I guess. We're just, it's been the scourge of, of, of uh, the Western world. Um, but pacifism is there also. So there is this uneasy relationship between those two understandings about the role of violence in, in human life. But the fathers of the church had a different way of understanding it. They understood that that prohibition, the ban, harem, from Deuteronomy 20, where if you're attacking the Jebusites, the parasites, the people in your own land, you're supposed to kill them all, destroy everything, what they understood what the role of it was, wasn't the destruction of people, but the identity of Israel with God at the center. 
and that the struggle of Israel and the struggle of the Catholic is how do you have the God of love at the center of things? And so they spiritualize the ban, they spiritualize the harem to actually making war on your attachments, your passions, and your appetites. They are, to each individual Christian, this heterodoxy, this belief, this idolatry that's contrary to having God at the center of your life. So if alcohol is really the center of your life, you have to make war on it, and you can't make peace with it. If unchastity is the center of your life, you have to make war on it. You can't, um, you can't make peace with it. You can't be just a little bit of an addict. You can't be just a little bit unchaste. You can't just be a little bit unjustly wrathful. So to have God at the center of your life, to have Jesus at the center of your life, is to pursue the ordinary uh, practice of salvation given you by the ordinary means of salvation. So it looks like this. First, you start with the life of grace. And the life of grace is the life of attending the Mass, listening to the scriptures, trying to be inspired by and following Christ, making use of the sacraments, the ordinary means of salvation, which are the sacraments of initiation, baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist, trying to make at least a weekly practice of attending Mass, trying to make a disciplined practice of the sacrament of reconciliation. You know, the key, according to the Church Fathers, and some have said this, is that a fierce attack on your appetites, your passions, your attachments, these things that want to pull uh, your emotions, your appetites, or the stuff that you want to treat like God to the center of your life to replace Jesus. The way to oppose the fierceness of that call in your life, like a fierce enemy, is simply discipline and moderation. Every day getting up and living your Christian life, availing yourself of sanctifying grace, having a personal prayer life, daily in your life. And the key is living a life devoted to virtue. Because if you live a life devoted to justice, temperance, moderation, and courageous endurance day to day in this battle, well, that is putting the virtues of Christ at the center of your life. Um, when Jesus rebukes James and John, and John is the beloved disciple, um, it's that at the center of their life is this God that says, in order for me to be saved, I must destroy others. This is not love of neighbor. And so Jesus is basically fulfilling the purpose that at least the people of Israel back in the Bronze Age thought that violence served in their subjugation of Israel and the sanctification of their country. Well, it didn't work. Uh, they were conquered by the Assyrians. They were conquered by the Babylonians. You know, Plato, who was a pagan, and, to, and the Greeks had struggles with violence also and what it meant. It's so much what Greek literature is about. But what Plato said, which I think is very apropos of our Christian struggle, because you can be just a person of reason to understand and believe this. You cannot bring order to the world outside of you 
until you have created order within yourself. So destroying all your enemies is not how it is you solve your problem of sin, attachments, passions, and appetites. It's because you make war on those things daily. You know, I said moderation was the correct approach for the Catholic. And if you just think about the role of fanaticism uh, in religion, I think of American Puritanism and Sharia law in America, which was very much about trying to control external behavior in the Plymouth colony. You'll see the same things in Catholicism, right? When we burn heretics like, uh, well, any number of them actually, whether it's the Spanish Inquisition or the other heretics that uh, uh, various inquisitions burned. Um, the real key is about identity. Do you identify with Christ? Um, and if you identify with Christ, then the demonic calls on all your passions, attachments, and appetites really have no power over you. That's where the struggle takes place. You know, St. John Paul II said it. We can propose faith. We can't impose faith. And so the response to the call to violence or sometimes the wrath of Christians as to what's happening with all the disorder in the world around us is first to recognize, and it has always been so, but the call of Jesus is the same. Not that God, God should destroy our, the people we see as enemies with divine fire, but that James and John and the rest of us should get our interior lives in order. And that's really at the heart of what St. Paul is talking about in his letter to the Galatians, which we'll close with today. Galatians chapter 5, from this Sunday. Brothers and sisters, for freedom Christ set us free. So stand firm and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. For you are called for freedom, brothers and sisters. But do not use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Rather, serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you go on biting and devouring one another, beware that you are not consumed by one another. So the role of violence. Ivan Karamazov and the brothers Karamazov said about the world around him, what he thought of it, and he was an atheist, is that the role, the rule of the world around us was reptile devours reptile. You get to decide whether you want to be a man, a woman, made in the image of Jesus Christ, or something much less than the human you're called to be. But a lot of it is how you think about violence, anger, and wrath in your life, and interior order in your soul. So God bless you. Um, thanks for uh, listening to another episode of Oral Valley Catholic. Give me a like if you, if you can. Thanks so much. God bless you and goodbye.